welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Kent Lambert, a Chicago-based musician and media artist who's also the Assistant Director of the Hack Arts, media Arts, Hack Arts Lab Media Arts Data and Design Center at the University of Chicago. We will discuss his artistic practice and how it reflects his experience of intellectual property, especially copyright. So welcome to the show, Kent. Thank you, Brian. Uh, It's great to be here. Yeah. No, I'm so glad to have you. It was really fun running into you in Chicago at the Chicago Underground Film Festival. And I'm, I'm glad we made a tentative appointment to, to have a conversation because as you know, I've always been uh, a big fan of your videos and of your music and also of your perspective on artistic practice, especially in relation to appropriation and, and ownership. Well, great. Yeah. I was, I was glad to know about your podcast. And as I mentioned, you know, before we started this, I haven't listened to it yet because I didn't want to get self-conscious, but now that we're doing it, I'm really excited to dig in um, and kind of catch up to how, you know, your, your sort of identity in life as, as a professor in this space. And I appreciate you bringing me on because I know I don't quite fit the mold of your typical guest, but I hope that I can say some things of value to your listenership. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I do try to break the mold such as it is whenever possible. Um, well, so, so Ken, in sort of by way of introducing yourself to listeners who may not all be steeped in media arts and independent music, I wonder if you could kind of sequentially talk a little bit in sort of a general sense for a non-specialist audience, both about the kind of video work Mm -hmm. that you do, as well as sort of the various musical projects in which you're engaged. Sure. I mean, to, to really break it down in terms of, you know, as a teenager, I think, once I got steeped in, you know, American pop culture in the 90s, um, I was most excited about music and really all genres of it. And then I got really into film. And so I tr- tried to be a music major f- briefly and um, didn't want to get that deep with it. And that's a whole other story. But I sort of pivoted to go to film school, which seemed like a great kind of compromise because I knew I'd have the ability to maybe um, – collaborate with other students and perhaps score their student films. And so I I did a good amount of that in film school. Um, And so I was able to sort of maintain this, this identity and this practice of of making music without studying it formally and getting lost in music theory and music academia. Um, And then it was during film school at the university of Iowa that uh, I was introduced to um, lots of experimental cinema, um, the, the real like lightning strike sort of touchstone moment for me was um, Martin Arnold's uh, Passage à l'Acte, would, I think is how you pronounce it, uh, in which he – do you know that film? Of course. Of course, yeah. Just making sure. Um, but for your listeners, uh, this film, the filmmaker Martin Arnold takes a very short section of uh, the film version of To Kill a Mockingbird and using – optical printing techniques um, to meet the way that I describe it to people, because this is how it felt to me as someone very engaged. I was consuming a lot of sample based music. And so it felt like he was just sort of scratching on the film. Um, You see moments just get looped and repeated in in a way that for a lot of people would probably be 
probably be quite grating. But to me, there was this irreverence to it. It, it took this sort of old text, not that old, but, you know, relatively old at the time and, and sort of transformed it into this really strange kinetic, uh, new experience. And so that, and a lot of other work like that, just, it felt like it was opening up a new world to me. Um, as I had, I'd made some, you know, scripted narrative stuff for film classes. And a lot of my friends were thinking they might, you know, try to go to LA and make independent films or get into the industry. And I didn't really enjoy um, planning and scripting and, and, you know, making films in that mode. And so realizing that it was a valid practice uh, in certain circles to make work completely from other work, um, it was extremely exciting to me uh, because this is the dawn. This is the late 90s. It's just when uh, the technology to, you know, digitize VHS tapes and things like that and edit them on the computer. It was, it was just becoming accessible to universities. And, um, you know, before long, I had my own laptop and a capture card and was able to hook up VCRs. And, you know, so I could just find, find material all over the place, thrift stores, going out of business uh, sales, video stores, yard sales, you name it. And, um, you know, I, I just started to make work out of those, um, out of those materials. And, um, you know, at the same time I was an avid, you know, music listener, um, and also starting to try to figure out how to record my own music, uh, at home. And so listening to lots of music like hip hop and, uh, ambient and all kinds of electronic music that also engage with sampling, I think uh, perhaps the way that those two sides sort of came together is that I think uh, I always had this intuitive knack for taking material that, you know, in broad terms would just be perceived as, well, this is just like garbage and using kind of musical structures or um, rhythms to tease out some other sort of meaning or experience, or at least um, allow for the possibility that something that if you were to watch the entire movie or watch, um, you know, if you were to see it in its original context, it maybe it doesn't have much value or is offensive or is just, you know, unwatchable as people say, but how, how can I make this watchable um, using formal techniques? Um, I didn't necessarily think about it that way at the time, um, but, I've always, in terms of the way that I work with video, I don't necessarily, it's very rare that I map out a plan and, you know, this is the point I'm trying to make, or this is um, what I think is going to happen. I just see something and think, oh, that's weird, or that's fascinating. And then maybe I have another piece of material and I think, oh, I, I feel like I could create some chemistry between these two things. And then the the sort of quote unquote finished work happens through lots of trial and error and iterating and um, different editing sequences and, you know, just shifting the clips around and until it feels right to me. Mm. Well, so a lot of your work or really most of your work that I've seen uses material that you've found from another source and then changes it or alters it or recontextualizes it in such a way that it means something different from the kind of original intended meaning of the material that that you're using. I wonder if you could describe sort of 
one of your films that you think of as being kind of particularly representative of some of that kind of work uh, in such a way that viewers who haven't seen it, maybe you could kind of get a sense of the way you're thinking about how to, how to approach restructuring material and using it to engage in meaning making. Great. Yeah. So the first one that comes to mind because it's, it's possibly my favorite of all of my videos is from 10 years ago. It's called fantasy suite. And, um, the material that I used for it, uh, and, the, and this might get at sort of the, the sort of haphazard process that leads to these pieces. Um, I had a roommate who, um, you know, knew that I was making these kinds of videos and his, his partner was really into the, the bachelor, that TV show, um, sort of ironically, but she would record it on their VCR because um, she couldn't watch it whenever it was on. And I went to visit them one time and there was this one section that she, she the two of them thought that I would really be interested in a couple of, of clips of the show because there were some cutaways that they just thought were really strange and, and they were right. And so um, they gave me that tape um, and I, I had it for a few years. And then uh, a few years before that, I had worked for an art house film distributor in New York City um, and my job was to go through the unsolicited um, submissions. So filmmakers hoping for commercial distribution would send their tapes to scads of, of distributors that existed at the time. And um, so I would go through these tapes and, you know, almost all of them had no prospects for commercial distribution. So I would write a polite note and send them back. But um in a few cases, there would be something that was just like too good for me. And it, it was not going to be distributed, but there might be something really fascinating or wonderful to me about it. And so, you know, the ethics of this um, are, you know, a little bit dubious because the filmmakers are sending things with one intention. And then little do they know there's this entry level worker drone who's like, oh, this might, this might be interesting material for my art. Um but I would I would sometimes dub these tapes and and then keep them and so this bachelor material um, resonated for me with this um, kind of sincere um, but very you know by by most standards very badly acted um, kind of love story independent film. Um, and so I had thought for for a good long while. I think there's. I think I could make some relationship between the content in these two pieces. Um, and then I was also obsessed with Sky Mall. Um, rest in peace, Sky Mall. Uh, I was just obsessed with the way that these technological um, gadgets would be marketed through images. And so the piece itself cuts between. Oh, and then there was also this '80s movie. Um, this remake of. Uh, a 1950s movie called where the boys are. Um, and so all of these texts to me, what they had in common, including sky mall was sort of um, representing sort of heterosexual mainstream kind of white romance in particular ways that, um, that, are, that were worthy of critique were worthy of unpacking that were funny if critiqued in a certain way. And so um you know, to describe, I guess, the way that the piece plays to your audience might be tricky. I would say they can watch it because it's totally available on YouTube and Vimeo um, with no passwords, uh, you know, 
to block them. But um, it ends up being this sort of strange, I guess, kind of tone poem that cuts between um, these different pieces of material um, weaving together a sort of ambiguous, strange, but it, you know, the when when the piece plays publicly, people always laugh. I think um, it's clear that I'm, um, I don't know that I'm making fun of, say, the people on The Bachelor, but that I'm trying to to get at something about the way we construct love or romance or relationships through culture. Um, and so, one of the techniques that I use. I, this piece, I struggled to make it because I, I knew that I felt like there was something there. But as I described earlier, this process of not necessarily having a roadmap, but just editing intuitively until it works. And there were times when I almost just, I almost dropped the project altogether because it wasn't clicking. But um, there was a moment when I, I slowed down just slightly the audio or the, the audio and video of the bachelor clips so that the the women's voices were made deep enough to almost sound like you know a man's voice and so kind of kind of making all of the the characters on the bachelor sort of androgynous the the men would speak and their voices would be even deeper but it would just it sort of it lengthened what they were saying and and with certain i don't know subtle um subtle inflections it felt like it just worked. It was, it made it strange. And it just went, once I did that, once I realized, Oh, that's the key to this bachelor material is I'm not just showing clips from the bachelor. They're slowed. They're, they're, they're made surreal in this way. Then, then the piece, then the editing process started to just sort of fly. And then it became like, like a puzzle. Oh, here's a section where I'll cut together some images from um, the sky mall catalogs and, and taking bits of dialogue from the independent film where maybe a character asks a question and then cutting to what could be an answer to the question. And so um, I've never done this before, like described my own video to someone who hasn't seen it, but I've, in doing so, I'm realizing, you know, there, there was a thought process there, or there's a way that I really try to, to engage with the material itself. And so again, if a character is asking a question, can I try to answer that question? And, and then where does that take us? Oh, that takes us back to these clips from this eighties movie of a bikini con of a sort of, um, co-ed bikini contest on a beach in Florida. And then where can I go from there? Um, and eventually it gets to a point where the, there's, you know, the, the, the late stages of editing, it'll be like, okay, that section is done. And uh, there's still, it's not, it's not hitting, it's not hitting my like emotional meters correctly yet. It's, it's definitely, it's like a puzzle coming together. Um, and only I really understand, only I know, how the pieces fit and and I don't know until they just fit and I feel confident that I want to show it to other people. Um I don't know if that described the piece itself um because I do think it's maybe too like, there's there's not a plot there's not a clear arc narrative arc but generally a sort of strange exploration of um of romantic tropes um and images using the bachelor and you know using sort of mass mass market, um, media products as, as the material. So Kent, earlier you mentioned this idea of 
the ethics involved in particular in making dupes of these movies that have been sent to the to the company you are working for and then using them in your work but you know but of course all the material that that you're working with is copyright protected or at least presumptively copyright protected and you're using it in a range of different ways that are not necessarily consistent with the wishes of the people who own a copyright interest in the work, whether or not, you know, they know that the work has been published and is generally available. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you think about kind of the ethics or values or purposes writ large of the way you're working with media material kind of as an artist? There's definitely distinctions. Um, There's differences in the way I think about different types of material. So for instance, you know, let's get to to just, since I use fantasy suite as an example, um, I have no problem using clips from the bachelor. Like I, I understand that. uh, And this is less of an issue anymore, but there was a time when, um, it felt like, oh well, if you if I use something for, that's connected, you know, that's perceived or believed to be the intellectual property of a massive company, they could come after me. They could cease and desist. And I was never that worried about it. The worst that would happen is, okay, they make me take it off of YouTube. And in fact, Fantasy Suite, um, I don't think you can watch it on YouTube in Germany because one of the films that that independent film I mentioned um, that's in it has a rock set song and somehow YouTube's algorithms caught that it's, there's a rock set song. And so I think it's blocked there, but anyways, that's a tangent. So I, I have no, um, I have no hesitation using that type of content, but if I felt like the ethics of using say the independent film were sort of dubious, it's partly because um, it's made by you know, uh, an independent filmmaker who's probably put a lot of his own finances into making this thing as a cultural gatekeeper working for this company, I could instantly recognize, well, this is, this is not going to, to be commercially viable for this company and probably any, um, commercial distributor art house or otherwise, but it has value to me if I give myself the license to appropriate it and, and have it talk to and resonate with other work. So that is far from the intention of the filmmaker, but I do, I do think about those people that I, that I have never and probably will never meet. And I always try to, to approach the work in a spirit of generosity and not just making fun of the material itself. Um, There, there are, you know, collectives and makers, like everything is terrible. I like a lot of what they do. Their their model is dumpster diving for fascinatingly bad or gory or whatever, um, you know, content from past eras. And now we know better than to think that this is good or funny or whatever it might be, or we laugh at it in a different way than how it was intended. Um, and I can enjoy uh, work made in that mode. Um greatly but what i'm doing is probably more of an essayist sort of approach that sounds kind of pretentious but i'm i'm trying to engage with the material and um find things in it that speak to me personally and that might offer the possibility of speaking to other people and so you know i've gotten 
um, great feedback from people who who love that particular piece because they feel like um, it is a a sort of scathing critique of of a certain type of heterosexual um, sort of uh, you know romantic heterosexual romantic culture and. Those might be people who identify as LGBTQ or other, or they might be people like me who are basically like cisgendered people, but who don't really fit or who, who want to, to be able to have relationships in which um, the kind of structures or the kind of like construction of relationships are different from a show like The Bachelor or from the way that this, this movie might construct it. So anyways, to get at your question, yeah, I, my, my practice is definitely, I'm wanting to, um, to sort of hold up a mirror to what gets made to what, what kind of culture is produced, um, through capitalism and through, um, our sort of socially constructed sort of perceived shared values and um, hold up a mirror to that and then refract it and distort it through, you know, formal manipulation or through bringing it in, in juxtaposition with other things that were never intended to, to speak with it. Um, so if I, if I feel, if I ever feel queasy about the ethics of it, it tends to be if I'm using material that, is itself sort of personal or intimate and is not made through corporate industrial processes. Does that make sense? Of course, of course. So I'm wondering in in particular, sort of how you conceptualize the legitimacy or lack thereof of the desire to own and control forms of expression, specifically in relation not only to the material that you're using, but also to the material that you yourself create, right? Because of course, there's a, there's a dialectic there, right? Definitely. And this is not something I've ever really been able to, to settle because we haven't talked about it too much. But at the same time that I was making these videos, including like the same month I was making Fantasy Suite, I've also had a somewhat separate practice of of recording music, writing songs, um, conceiving of and constructing albums with other people, and excuse me, and um, that that content has very different aims, very different um, practices and techniques, uh, and that content I do sort of. <laughs> I don't like to think of it in terms of ownership, but I do put my name on it. And, you know, the videos, if if any of your listeners watch these videos, you'll see every single one ends with um, this work is in the public domain. Um, part of that is a way for me to to just like put it out there that I'm not claiming I'm not copyright copywriting this because it's all taken from other sources. Um, and also it's it's a gesture towards, well, what it, I'm interested in this question of what is the public domain. When I make music, I don't put that same tag on it. Um, some of that's because it's different type of content. I don't, I don't want a mega corporation to just like take a song of mine and make a bunch of money off of it. Uh, so I use creative commons licenses. Um, maybe at some point I'll just decide it's all free. Do whatever you want with it. it I, with the music, I would never, uh, object whatsoever if, say, someone recorded a cover without consulting me about it, or if someone sampled it. Um, but I don't want my music to end up in a commercial or something um, 
for cars or any sort of product. Um, I don't want it to end up in a commercial in general, but I certainly don't want it to, to happen without, um, you know, because I, because I didn't, um, because I just made it free for that sort of use. Maybe that's weak or maybe that's hypocritical of me. Um, but I've always thought of them as sort of different, different activities, different audiences, and sort of with different framing in terms of, of intellectual property. But in, with all of it, I don't feel like I own it, even the music. Um, I don't feel like culture should be owned. I feel like once I put put an album out or once I release something, once I feel comfortable enough making it available to other people, if I decide I don't like a certain song and that happens a lot and I don't want to perform it anymore, I would never sort of argue with someone if that if that song meant something to them because once it's out there, it, it belongs to, to other people. Um, I don't know. I feel like you should challenge, or I feel like there, there are things I just said there that there's inconsistencies and you should challenge me a little bit because I've never articulated it. I've never talked about the, the way that I sort of, um, frame the music and how it differs from the way I frame the, the videos. And maybe I'm trying to like, to have my cake and eat it too. I don't even know what that expression means really. <laughs> well, so one of the things I've always been interested in is your consistent practice of explicitly stating that the videos you make are in the public domain because it's really it's an interesting move in a number of different re- in a number of different ways for one thing there's the question of you know is it actually effective right does does a statement that a work is in the public domain actually make it so Right. It, 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 on an, on another level, there's a kind of irony to say this is a work constructed out of bits and pieces of works that are protected by copyright, and I am performatively stating that this work that I appropriated, or maybe somebody might say misappropriated, even is now a public domain work. And part of me can't help but wonder if, to the extent that it sounds like you have some feelings of, um, I, I wouldn't, I don't want to say regret, but feelings like you know maybe on some occasions by copying and using material without the knowledge of the person who was sharing that material with a company on a confidential business basis, that maybe there was something arguably improper about the action. And I wonder if the sort of performative statement of placing it in the public domain or stating that you place it in the public domain and in a sense sort of performatively renounce your own ownership of the material that you've worked on is also kind of a way of reaching for a certain kind of absolution in relation to those possible misgivings. That's a great way to put it. I think, yeah, I, I think I would say that's generous to to think of it that way. Um, I think it, I guess I've always felt like it's messy, but I believe and am committed to, um, and I, I think it's just happening before our eyes and in some ways that are sort of monstrous, but I'm committed to um, culture being this just messy place in which something that is intended for one purpose can just be spun around and you know maybe something that that is uh, in its original form um 
grotesque or or just really misguided. What if you slow it down or what if you take one moment from it and cut it cut it together with something different? Can that could that make someone weep? Could that be deeply moving or could that be really funny? Could that provide catharsis? And um you know, I think maybe there's a critique of production, like all of this, we just, there's all of this stuff that gets made and money gets spent on it. And people, people work really hard on it. And only a tiny fraction of it actually makes it into, you know, onto Netflix or into a theater. Um, You know, and a lot of what I'm saying right now applies a little bit more to when I was making a lot of this work, when there was, you know, more scarcity. Um, You didn't have YouTube, you didn't have just everyone uploading their own channel of their art but so, so th- i have to acknowledge that this this practice has really changed a lot as as the technology of of making and sharing media has changed but so really what in a lot of ways what i was kind of hoping for when i made this work and and put the public domain sort of credit at the end was this sense of let's not be so precious about all this stuff like and and for me, it's just incredibly uh, fulfilling to do this, to, to take things that feel like they're discarded or that might never be seen um, outside of the, the sort of maker's immediate friends and family and share them with uh, my own friends or my own peers in a, in a small community that is sort of like maybe a bit trained or, or has it has a desire or understands the tradition of appropriation understands that it's, it's a huge part of, of just contemporary art making in general. Um, I don't know if that gets at the question effectively, but yeah, no, I mean, so, so I wonder, you know, like as a member of a particular discursive community, right. Of largely video and film artists working in a sort of art world adjacent, at least, um, set setting, right? I mean, this is a area of production in which, at least in my experience, the majority of authors seem very intent on exercising control, on being concerned about ownership and attribution, and on sort of expressing something very personal about themselves and their own values through the work that they're creating that they want to sort of maintain control over and be able to manage the way it's presented and maybe even the way it's kind of discussed and and understood. And so it's interesting to me that you're presenting your work in a way that um, that historically especially and i think that it's still to some degree true today even as social media distribution and so on has become so much more common people still want to have certain kinds of control and ownership and in a sense you're sort of renouncing uh some of that control and and, and i wonder sort of how you think about that dichotomy in terms of your own practice and also in terms of how you see the practice of other artists working in the same space well i would say you know the way you described artists working you know the the sort of general um mode of making that that artists sort of want to have a certain degree of control like everything you said i identify with that i 
I put my name on this work. I submit it to festivals and I want it to be a representation of the way that I look at the world. Um, I don't want someone else to take discarded media and edit together and put my name on it and have it be sloppy or have it be, you know, material, just have it say something different. So I, I'm very much trying to express myself and um, unpack or, you know, reflect on things that are uh, of concern to me. So, you know, I'll just keep using fantasy suite as the example, like, having collected this material there was definitely an itch to just like work something out about about like maybe it's about my own life and being married and being in you know in a lot of ways a traditional sort of heterosexual relationship um and just sort of chafing at a lot of the ways in which family structures or culture um sort of put boxes around that and so so wanting to just deal with it and so i want that work to to i want my name to be attached to it what might be a little bit different is um i don't necessarily want to make money from it i don't i don't want to control how many people can see it and and you know that maybe there there is an art world mode in which a gallery represents something and so it can only be seen in certain you know, certain spaces, certain sanctioned spaces. And I think that I was thrilled as soon as I could have a YouTube account, a Vimeo account, and just make things available widely um, without having to have these sort of gatekeepers in between necessarily. Um, so I don't think that I'm that far apart from other peers in that space, maybe other than the fact that I, I'm not interested in the case of these videos in um, doing whatever putting a copyright symbol on a piece does for the maker. Um, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I, if somebody wants to chop up any of my videos and make a remix, um, that would be somewhat weird and that they'd just be chopping up something that's consists of already chopped up other things. But I, I would be thrilled about that. And maybe that's one of the differences I think, um, maybe f film and video makers who are making really personal work in which sort of every shot is carefully composed and lit. Uh, maybe they wouldn't appreciate someone, you know, riffing on or, or somehow taking that and, you know, showing it in a, in a less high definition format or something. So, but, but otherwise I, everything you said about, um, about the way sort of artists want to sort of, you know, I'm obsessive about this work and I don't, let people see it until I feel like every moment is like kind of finely honed and just feels right to me. You know, I will obsess and obsess in the final stages of editing because there might just be some, some two second shot that's a little too long or that needs to be stretched out a little bit, or there might be one, one sound that's like a little too jarring that needs to be, to be smoothed out. Um, so to me, that's like about control. You know, I think you were talking about control in a slightly different way, but um, I, I am not making work that's meant to be sort of seen as anonymous or something. It's very much about what I'm concerned with. And I've thought about the music that I make and the videos that I make as being really different. Um, but the older I get and the longer I do this, I realize actually um, the, the main difference is just the social and sort of economic, the sort of business communities that um, and structures that I have to 
to sort of get them out to other people. You know, if, if you want to make music and get it to an audience beyond just your friends, you have to engage with labels. And then making these kind of videos, it's more like festivals and maybe very, very small distributors. Other than that, I think um, I am working in, you know, when I write songs, it's completely by myself and I flesh the music out with other people in many cases. When I'm making videos, it's com it's pretty much completely by myself. So that's a difference. But in general, um, I guess I'm not trying to get famous. I'm not trying to, I really try to keep my ego in check and, and uh, make work that, you know, a, an underlying motivation is to do something that that is meaningful to other people that might provide some sort of catharsis for them. So I generally, with both music and video, I don't want to um, make an ex a really literal statement about anything. I more want to ask questions of myself. I want to critique my own consumption habits, my own, um, I just, I want to critique my own ways of engaging. Like, why do I end up watching certain TV shows? Why do I get hooked on, why did I get hooked on 24 during the Iraq war? Um, I don't know. So I worked it out. I used clips from 24 and lost in a video because I felt kind of uncomfortable and ambivalent about um, consuming those shows. So I don't know. I guess if you, does that, does that make, does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. So, so in, in addition to the collage work that you've described, you've also done a fair amount of video work that sort of falls into a category that often known as like machinima effect. And, and, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that work is like and how it relates to your other work. Do you see it as having similar goals or are you uh, trying to accomplish different things in that work? And how do you see it kind of fitting within that genre in relation to the kinds of, to the kinds of things other people are doing kind of in the same space? Okay. Um, so yes, in recent years, uh, maybe since about 2012, um, I have been working on a series of videos that are uh, focused on, on video games. Um, I feel like it's a continuation of the past work in that I'm not going out with a camera and hiring actors or anything like that. Um, and I'm making work, you know, almost completely from, from material that is, you know corporate intellectual property but in this case it's video games and so it's different in that as a player of a video game one has a certain amount of agency and control over what appears and so especially with with you know current console and pc gaming you can control the camera and uh, you know you can do all sorts of things to manipulate the image just within the game depending on how it's been constructed so in that way um like, I suppose it's different. I'm not just taking some tape that I found and cutting it up with something else. I'm, I'm participating in a different way. Um, and also it, it has a different focus. I'm not, I'm, I might be interested in saying things about misogyny or um, all sorts of political topics through games and the ways that with the past work, I would maybe try to talk about um, war or, um, sort of 
warmongering and the, the culture of the Bush Cheney era, you know, I wouldn't speak about it directly in those days, but I would try to use other material to sort of, um, you know, tr try to form some sort of reflection of the the sort of political, sociopolitical culture of the time. In this case, I'm using video games maybe towards similar ends. Um, but it is definitely work that that falls into this tradition of machinima. Um, you know, the first time I was introduced to that term, the work that I saw as representative of it was sort of like using video games to make cinema in a sort of mainstream way. So like having characters pose and then having dialogue and maybe having the dialogue dubbed over it. And I'm not engaging with that. I mean, if, if it's, it, I don't have any problem calling it machinima, but I think of it as very much sort of experimental or avant-garde machinima in that um, I'm not interested in necessarily, I'm not interested in like making movies out of video games. I'm interested in making this sort of, reflective, hopefully poetic sort of work. Um, and video games just are, are the material that I'm concerned with. And, and I'm, I'm interested in talking about, you know, what it, what it means that they're this, um, at least commercially dominant form now. Uh, and I think for a lot of young people, they're, they're as important to them as, as movies were to me as a kid in the nineties. Um, so, so you, yeah, the way the way the work is operating, I think it looks different and that I'm using mostly sort of HD sources. And so it doesn't have this sort of um, kind of retro lo-fi feeling that a lot of my early videos had. Um, but I do see it as as a continuation. And I'm just I'm trying to challenge myself to use different formal strategies. So a piece I finished about three years ago called Reckoning 4 um, I tried to sort of step up a little bit and do things like like one of the underlying kind of formal um, techniques in that work was I would play play games, play video games, and find scenes in them in which there were TVs or computer screens, and then you know maybe sort of set up a shot in which there's a screen, and then take other video clips and. Um, put them on those screens. So, you know, use compositing techniques to sort of make it look like, oh, in the video game, this character or in this in this sort of um, control center, the thing that's playing on the TV is this movie that then we cut to. And so you as the audience of my work will then see, see this other piece. And so sort of moving between different um, source material through this device of placing of having screens in video games that are showing um, different work and, and using audio the same way. So finding a game in which there's a radio and then constructing my piece so that what's being heard from the radio is a podcast in which people are talking about misogyny and gaming culture or something like that. So probably the work feels really different and I, I hope it does because I didn't want to just continue to, to make work that was about, Oh, let's all laugh at this, this, um, this crazy tape that Kent found, but making work that I, I think one, one goal currently is to more directly engage with my own consumption of culture. And so I enjoy video games. I recreationally, um, but I'm not completely comfortable with that. There's a lot about, 
them and about the culture around them that makes me that's very troubling to me and so making work from them is a way to sort of uh resolve that a bit or at least to you know i can feel a little more comfortable uh engaging with with video games if i'm not completely doing so as a consumer or as a fan mm. well so in closing ken i mean it did it does seem to me that there's a way in which there's a kind of mainstreaming of the sort of machinima format, as well as sort of a intentional kind of encouragement or even collaboration on the part of the people producing the video games that sort of implicitly, or in some cases, it seems like even explicitly encourage their users to engage in this kind of engagement with, or in this kind of use of of the product, and I wonder if that in any way changed or affected the way you thought about your relationship to the material that you were using, and um, the nature of the sort of engagement with the product in relation to the the kinds of ideas around ownership, recreation, and expression that that you were engaged with in your previous work? Yeah, I mean, I haven't, I'll admit, I haven't done any kind of deep dive into um, the kind of machinima you just described that might be a little bit more sort of blessed by the game companies or, or the kind of things that they may want to see where it's like, oh, here's a player who's showing how beautiful this scene we created is. I mean, there's there's a possibility of finding that in some other work I'm making now. But, um, you know, if there's a kind of prankster energy that I'm trying to summon in many cases. And I'm definitely trying to critique this stuff that I enjoy. You know, I'm trying to critique these products that um, just have tremendous, just the the amount of people that it takes to make this work. And, and probably there's a lot of dark stories that, that are rarely told or that I haven't yet explored about the, the labor structures, you know, to rent, to just create these, these, um, these scenes. And so, um, to give an example in, in a piece I made that I put out in 2014, um, I had this like fighting, this UFC fighting game. And um, I tried to play the tutorial. I didn't really intend to play that game and become good at it, but I was just another thing to put in the mix, to put in the, you know, to, to upload into my editing software. And in playing this game and playing the tutorial, it was so complicated. The moves, you know, you had to do this button press and then turn this controller this way. And I'm not that good. I'm I'm not that good at playing games. And so I realized no matter what I did, these two characters, these two avatars, these fighters who were very photorealistic, they would end up sort of dry humping these two men. And clearly the game was not intended. At least I don't think so. And if it, if it was great but um you know the purpose of the tutorial was just to help me learn how to play the game and then i can go on and and you know level up and uh, maybe play against other people online through my prowess of, of these these coordinated button presses but but by playing it in a bumbling way i ended up being able to to create and sort of capture this very sort of homoerotic um cinema so to speak and so that's how i'm trying in this practice there are times when I just play a game to like let off steam for an hour before I go to bed. But when I'm intentionally playing with the prospect of it being part of my video work, I will in many cases try to play the game absolutely in a way it's not intended to be played. Um, If there's a scene in which 
there's some dialogue and then you're supposed to just move along to the next cut scene. And then an action sequence comes after that where you shoot a bunch of people. I will just draw that out and I will try not to go to the next scene and produce sort of awkward um, action between the characters. Um, and so I don't think that's the type of machinima that the game companies want people to make. Although I don't, I think that, I perhaps am still playing into their sort of schemes because I'm still showcasing. And and I do get questions sometimes like, what was that game in that, in that scene? But um, I'm throwing so many in there and I'm, I'm um, sort of intentionally trying to, to obscure maybe the original texts. Um, but that said, I don't, I'm not trying to, to say that this work is sort of superior to the work of somebody who just plays a game and wants to make, you know, make a beautiful little movie out of it. It's just different. It's in a different um, sphere. And it's not something I invented, you know, this, there's a tradition of this as well with artists like Phil Solomon and Peggy Awesh and um, all kinds of other people, Corey Archangel, who, who would play games and then just try to take, take, to, to capture from them and then present that in this sort of art world or experimental cinema context. Um, I feel like there was another facet to your question that I, have forgotten um or do you feel like that that answered it in a remotely satisfying way no that was that was that was absolutely okay. great so thanks thanks so <laughs> thanks so much kent for 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 coming on the show it was really fun and interesting to talk to you about how a video artist thinks about about ownership and copyright and so many of the things that we we are studying as law professors and you are operationalizing as the, the the person who's actually engaging in cultural production well it was great to talk to you about this um i in parting um let's say there's some students out there who are students of the law but also interested in this type of culture i'm just going to name check a couple of other um, things that were very influential to me the tape beetles and negative land were making a lot of work in the late 90s that that was really crucial to me and i would encourage anyone listening to this if you don't already know about the negative land single called u2 um, and the fair use uh, law case that resulted from it um, I highly encourage you to to seek that out um, because we didn't talk about fair use, but um, all of this this video work we're talking about, some of the confidence that I've had in making it and not really giving a shit about, you know, whose property this material is, is coming from the fact that people like Negative Land had done the work of sort of arguing that if we take um, clips from a radio show and use MIDI versions of a U2 song and put it out as a vinyl record with the, the, the letter U and the numeral two on the front, that's fair use. We're not somehow damaging U2 or we're not somehow stealing from them. It's a legitimate work in its own right. That was a, a major influence on, on me in proceeding with the kind of work I just talked about. Awesome. Well, thanks Kent. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And um, I look forward to now listening to your podcast. Regularly, <laughs> I saw your mom at the party.
She was just sort of standing around. I met your sister Summer. Actually, I just kind of said hi. I told her she was great in the film. She said thanks and smiled. She seemed really nice. River Phoenix. Forget the metaphors. I wonder what you would have thought of your brother walking. In fact. 
kind of still do But I couldn't afford the ones that you used The fence I talks like you are an angel At times even like you are Jesus down and see us show us that